I'm Josh Boaz. I'm Matt Zucker. There are a lot of podcasts featuring top executives. But what about the next wave of leadership? The makers and the doers. The ones we're all going to work for. We wanted to meet them. Find out their story, how they got to where they are, and what they see coming for everyone. This is a spotlight on those on the way up. This is Rising. Today on Rising, we welcome Adrian Fasano, CEO and co-founder of Scoperta, a new digital marketplace which connects wine drinkers to small and mid-sized wineries. Scoperta is wine discovery made simple. I know Adrian because I'm lucky enough to work with Adrian, both to help launch Scoperta and at her prior role as CMO of Cushman and Wakefield, one of the largest commercial real estate firms in the world. She's a top marketer and experienced pro, a Chicago Cubs fan, and I can't wait to hear her story. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thank you, Matt. I'm thrilled to be here. Welcome, Adrian. Well, thank you. So, Adrian, we've been working together, but I've really never asked you, and this is terribly narcissistic of me, about your career and about your story. So this is a great chance for me to learn and for all of us to hear about your path. Well, thank you, Matt. And let me just preface saying it's it's been an incredible pleasure to work with you over the years um, and to get to know you both personally and professionally. I can't imagine a better person um, to have in my arsenal. So a uh, big shout out to Matt Zucker at Proper, the, the digital rock star that he is. Um, you hear that, Josh? <laughs> yeah, I hear it. You got the thank you note out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I think it's always hard, you know, at the age of 54 to harken back to where I started, right? And um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to give you guys just a little bit of context around um, my family dynamics and a little bit about what my, where my aspirations were, uh, and then we can fast forward pretty quickly. But I grew up in an Irish-Italian family. Um, and, uh, my father had three girls, never, never got the, the son. And, uh, as we advanced in our lives together as a family, my father was a very big advocate of, you know, basically enforcing in all three of us education, right? Knowledge being power. And two, as females, you can do anything anyone else can do in the world. Um, your world is your oyster, which I often say to my girls, uh, and my son today. Um, so I had a lot of support growing up, um, and I was fortunate enough to have education as a cornerstone. Um, interestingly, when I graduated from college, I wasn't one of those folks who knew exactly what I wanted to do, right? And some do, you know, either you, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, you go through some of the traditional uh, sets of rigor. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just knew I wanted to be successful. Uh, my mother had been a flight attendant uh, for most of my life and actually was fired when she had me back in 1967. Mm. And then they filed a returning mother's lawsuit. And my mother came back 10 years later, got all her seniority. And so naturally, my mother had given us a gift of travel. And so as I graduated, she said, well, why don't, why don't you become a flight attendant? Um, and I was kind of I was that that felt pretty interesting to me that I could go out and see the world and explore it um, with a college edu education, et cetera. So that was the path I was planning. And I started to kind of get involved in thinking about going down that path. Although I will say, interestingly in life, you go to, you have a few, a few different detours. 
And uh, interestingly for me, I was very passionate about communication. So I had graduated with a corporate communications degree, one of the first coming out of the University of Iowa, believe it or not, um, against my father's wishes. He was very passionate about me being a, a business major. And um, very quickly, I started to get involved in um, applying to some jobs and roles that I thought could be interesting for me to kind of, you know, as we all want to do when we come out of school, you want to make money fast and you want to get involved in doing things that uh, can start to show some level of expertise around your education. And so my first role was with a temporary talent organization and um, I was there for about a year. And interestingly, um, I ended up uh, being fired from my first job. Mm, right, so right. imagine the heartbreak uh, yeah. out of college, right? Believing that you've got the world by the tail. And I was fired because I was a whistleblower in recognizing some unfair labor practices that were happening oh, wow. at the company. And because I wasn't abiding by their view of what they were asking me to do, they let me go. Um, an incredible lesson at the age of 22 years of age. And from that, that point forward, uh, I always had this intensity about coming into roles and ensuring that I found the right culture and finding the right moral and ethical code within the companies because it was so off with the company that I had started with. And so that was really part of the trajectory of, of where my career started. Um, after that year, I ended up uh, resorting back to kind of that service industry, right? Thinking about continuing to be a flight attendant, uh, considering going into hospitality, because of course, through my years of college, I was, um, I was waitressing to pay for some of my schooling. And so I ended up at Allstate uh, being a catering manager, believe it or not. Um, for the executives at Allstate here in Chicago. And so I was up every morning in these beautiful suits with a hairnet on. Uh, 5 a.m., I was in the kitchen spinning spinach dip, doing all kinds of interesting, fun things, um, until literally about maybe four or five months in, it occurred to me as I was you know, doing a lot of events for executives that I, I, lo I looked at myself in the mirror and I, I distinctly remember this moment where I said to myself, I don't want to cater to executives, I want to be an executive. And I, you know, we all get these moments in life, right? Where they're just ahas. And so with, very shortly within a few months, I left that job and went back to school to get my MBA in international business. Um, one to satisfy my father's view of, having to have some level of business education when you're going into the corporate world. Um, but more importantly for me, recognizing that knowledge was only going to afford me more access and opportunities. Did you have a network then? I mean, you, you decided this on your own to go to, to quit your job and go to business school, but did, so you didn't know how there are other people in no, the business community. Not yet. This, this was all like, I mean, this was from what I graduated at 22 or 23 this was all from 22 to like 24. Um, and so I went back to school, um, got my MBA and decided that I had grown up in an area in Chicago in the Northwest suburbs where really the icon of corporate America was Motorola. So for anyone who lives in Chicago, 
years ago in Schaumburg, Illinois, is where the corporate headquarters were for Motorola. Today, they, they now are downtown. And I lived within 10 miles from there. And so the only thing I knew of the world of, of business and private sector was Motorola. So as I, as I finished my, my MBA, I decided I was going to go call on Motorola and start my career there. And I called and knocked on their door for 12 months consecutively because clearly I had no experience. Um, and so I, but I was determined, I was determined to get out there and do something with what I thought was this incredible company, culture, Six Sigma quality. And so by the 12th month, they were so tired of seeing me that they offered me a job as an inside sales representative. And that is where I would tell you, I really, my career really began and I cut my teeth and learned a lot and became uh, the person, the professional, the executive I am today. It was 14 years within Motorola that I, I took what was an inside sales organization, not doing much, and turned it into $75 million in revenue for the company um, and left Motorola running their automotive and their transportation sector in delivering wireless devices to factory floors and to uh, you know, the, the signature capture devices you see today that come to your doorstep from UPS and FedEx. I have one question. Um, you, you, in the beginning, you said, you know, one of the goals or kind of one of the driving factors is just to be successful. How did that, your definition of success kind of evolve, you know, through this, these kind of early stages of your career? Well, I, I'm going to be very honest with you on that, Josh. You know, coming out of school, my, my definition behind success was money. Um, and it was a, just a big part of feeling like if I had money in my pocket, it afforded me financial freedom. And with financial freedom, I'd be able to make better decisions. Um, I very quickly learned through the course of my career that money obviously is not the only factor. In fact, more often than not, um, it's less of the factor. In, in my success, it was much more about the goal, the work, and the purpose around what I was doing. And the money did come. But when I first started, and it was probably the reason I took that first job and, and left and, and was let go after year one, was I made that decision 100% on money. And by the way, in full disclosure, that first job I had was $18,000 a year. <laughs> Hard to wow. believe that we, could, yeah. we would even pay any college grad coming out of school today anything right. less than what? forty fifty thousand dollars dollars $18,000. So anyway, so as I shifted into Motorola, um, I very quickly was able to gain a network, um, learn a ton of really important, not only life skills, um, but, but very forensic. And one of the things I think that was most impactful to me in my years was the Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, and for those of you who may have taken that course, I was a young professional moving into middle management. And at the end of the day, you know, colleges don't teach you the influence piece, right? They don't teach you how to connect with people. You know, the conversations, looking somebody in the eye, you know, a strong handshake, remembering their names, uh, engaging with them in ways that make that relationship more meaningful. So that course itself really shifted me from being an individual contributor um, to a people manager. And I would tell you today in my career, a big part of my success has been, and, and will continue to be, 
that I've always taken care of the people wrapped around me. Um, and when I was quite young at Motorola, a general manager who was on a golf course with me said, if you take care of your people, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, um, yeah that's I great. tell you, I'm that's always a fierce advocate of that. Um, sometimes to a fault uh, in some roles, right? When you're trying to shift from being, uh, you know, in my CMO role, I was, I was definitely very passionate about that marketing organization. Uh, in a CEO role, which I'm in today, I've had to step away from being passionate about the marketing piece of it because if I am too passionate of that, it's at the cost of what I need to do from a visionary perspective today as a CEO and co-founder. That course, did someone uh, urge you to take that or is that just something you kind of discovered yeah, so on your own? Motorola was very, very big on training and education. In fact, and I still believe it's, it's the case today that when you come in, you have to do 40 hours a year of mandated training. Now you can, you know, choose whatever you want. Um, but that was a part of, that was a part of my, my trajectory moving into people management was to take that course. And it was fully funded by the company, by Motorola at the time. In addition to the fact that Motorola funded most often your advanced education. So they were a, a very big believer, which again, goes back to aligning early on and understanding that these roles in our success is only predicated on ensuring we are with companies that align with our values, our morals, and our, you know, our level, our integrity, right? Um, and I can tell you that I, I, I won't name them, but we've probably all been in a few roles with a few companies in our life where that has been really off. And when it is, um, you're not delivering your best. You're not uh, able to, to be there for the, those around you. And you're not able to contribute in the most meaningful ways. And so for those um, that are, are may be in that type of a situation, the biggest advice I can give is get out. Don't try to make it better. Don't try to change it. If you know fundamentally the culture is not aligned with where you are and what you know you need to succeed, make a change. Right. Right. And how would you advise um, kind of rising professionals now about education and training? You know, I, it, I think some companies still have kind of formal, you know, pay for the MBA, but it, it seems like a lot of that has changed, you know, and people move around a lot faster. So I don't, I don't know if there's that kind of 40 hours of training built into, yeah. into companies anymore. What's the modern day view? What would you tell people to do? I, th I think it's a, I think it's a great point, Josh. You're right. Not today. Uh, people are moving what three three to five years, and that could even be. I mean, I've heard it's two to three. Um, here's what I just say: is we are we have a, a responsibility to ourselves to continue to be better at everything we're doing. Like we've never arrived and declared victory as professionals, and so the only way to expand that is to constantly be seeking opportunities to learn more from someone, from something, from some course, from some opportunity. And today, given the platforms like what we're on today, right? Given all the live streaming, all the podcasts, there's no excuse to not take advantage of the ways in which you can become better to the people around you um, and be able to offer more to the organization ultimately. So I would I would encourage anyone to be looking at year over year, what are the things that I, where are my weak spots? Where are the opportunities? Where could I be stronger as a people leader, as an individual contributor? 
And how best can I do that? And if you don't pen to paper it, if you don't put it in your goals for the year, it doesn't happen. One topic that's come up a lot for people, at least in my business, is what to specialize in and where to be a generalist. And marketing, of course, is so broad, it's very, it could be daunting. Did you find along the way you found there's certain subject matter you wanted to be really good at and others you just wanted to be a light proficiency? Or how did you approach that topic? That's a great question, Matt. I, I am, you, you guys will probably find as we, as we go through this, in every aspect, I am unconventional. <laughs> From when I started to where I'm at today. I would tell you that historically for me, um, I always, I did quite a bit of sales at Motorola as well. And so I didn't get into marketing until later in my career. I was about 15, 15 years in before I actually got into marketing because I was so heavily focused on the sales side. Um, and so for me, it was always about translating whatever I was doing to the bottom line. And so no matter what marketing role I took, it was less about the specific pieces of marketing, but more about the levers that marketing could afford business leaders um, and the company and the sales goals and objectives to use marketing. And I would, I I have to quote uh, Scott Davis on this, by the way, really quick, who is uh, at profit and has a book called the shift. Um, If you are really good at what you do, no matter what level of expertise you have, it's the ability to be able to translate that expertise into something meaningful to the company's goals and objectives. So you're actually never coming from a functional area of expertise. And that that is pretty much how I would define myself. So oftentimes, executives and leaders would come to me and say, here's the business problem I'm trying to solve for. And I would be able to give them some context around what we could do to do that. Uh, and in many times, I would actually dumb down how to, how to prescribe that from a marketing perspective. So it wasn't intimidating to the business leaders, and it didn't provide them with this eh, level of, un- of uncertainty, right, that can sometimes occur from a marketing perspective. I call it the marketing speak, right, that we all know as marketers, but the rest of the world doesn't. And so sometimes you start speaking that different language. And it becomes a bit uncertain and or intimidating to those wrapped around us, even at the executive level. So an example of that is, you know, many of the executives when I was at Cush Wake really didn't understand the social metrics, right? I mean, social media is changing so fast. So where do we put our money? How do we invest it? I happen to be on the um, advisory board for Hootsuite. For those of you who are familiar, it's a dashboard for analytics. And so I encouraged the Hootsuite team to build us not just the details of all of our social channels, but to give us a score, to create a social score that I could sell to the executive, to the leadership team. So they would understand every time we spoke about the investments we were making, where we rated on a scale of one to 10, that's relatable to them. So it's those types of things I think that make us much more effective. And it also gives us the ability to think differently and affords us really unique opportunities that sometimes fall outside of that core level of expertise now. How did you get into commercial real estate from from Motorola? That's going to switch. 
So good question. Uh, I actually, I actually left Motorola after 14 years. We were, we were at a, a very pivotal time at Motorola where we were doing a lot of investment into data. Um, and we, our, our, our customers were asking a lot of us to do the R and D. And so at that point we had not purchased Siemens yet. Um, and it felt to me like I, I wasn't, it felt for me that I needed to make a change because I was a, 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 uh, a strong single point of contact to many of our, our customers on the data side. And until the company was ready to make that investment, I always felt like I was tap dancing, which felt a little disingenuous to our customers. Interestingly, I think it was about a year after I left, we made that investment um, and, and the company did the right thing. But anyway, as I was shifting that, I didn't go to commercial real estate. I actually, and here's, here's something I would tell everybody when you think about your career, never assume that because you've been in a role or in a function or in an expertise, that that is all that's slated for you for the balance of your career left remaining. So I ended up sitting down to lunch with somebody thinking, oh, I've been in technology for 14 years. I need to stay in technology. And so I was considering going to NAPTEC. And the lunch I was at, I was with the deputy chief of staff for Mayor Daly. And the CIO happened to just have left NAPTEC to come over to the city of Chicago. And so we sat down to talk about NAVTEC and very quickly transitioned from NAVTEC to would you ever consider coming to the city and basically helping us uh, change the change the, the landscape and the um, brand identity of what we see the city of Chicago today? Meaning we've got a lot of city departments. They all need help in ensuring that they're delivering value to the taxpayers would you ever consider making a significant change like that? And, and it kind of went like this. It went, well, would you be interested in sitting down with Mayor Daly and talking to him a little bit about, you know, what consumers see when they get to City of Chicago's website? You know, how, how forward-facing is the city when it comes to digital transformation? Um, and so funny as it may seem, Matt, 45 minutes later in that conversation with the mayor, I walked out of the office uh, and the chief of staff uh, at the time, which was uh, Ron Huberman, who was a wonderful chief of staff. So like, you know what? You've got this job. <laughs> now, amazing. the interesting part about this in life is I, did, I my father was a staunch Democrat. And my family grew up for all the right reasons of living in Chicago um, big fans of the daily administration, but I wasn't into politics. And so I came in, in at a time when the city was going through some transformation and they were looking for good corporate leaders. And so it, what it tells you is the opportunity that any of us can have at making an impact in any area, both private or public. And I will tell you that I spent seven years working for the mayor um, helping him, you know, drive economic development for the city uh, worked quite a bit. It was uh, that was the time I met Matt uh, Scott Davis at Profit, and we began to start thinking about branding and and uh, looking at how does how does Chicago really drive the importance of um, being one of the top ten economic uh, powerhouses in in the in the world, and so it was probably the most 
rewarding seven years of the 25 of my career. And I probably made the least amount of money. I mean, obviously relative to what I did when I first started coming into, you know, to a a small company. But to me, getting out there and being flexible to the options that are available and being open to taking any meeting and maybe not any, but taking meetings where you would originally think to yourself, there's, there's just no, I would have no interest in doing something like that um, is really where that creativity and that innovation in your career starts to hum. And so that was seven years of doing that, Matt. And, and interestingly, I would have never thought I would have been in commercial real estate. It was not something on my radar, but as the mayor stepped down and many of us shifted our roles, um, I had been doing so much work in Chicago that Jones Lang LaSalle came to me and said, Hey, we really need a footprint in Chicago. We need, we are, it's our corporate headquarters. We need to be uh, really connected to what's going on, both public and private. And given the work you've done with the mayor, would you consider coming over and helping us with our marketing and branding efforts? And so Again, another risk that I took um, to go into something pretty unknown to me. I didn't know the industry at all. And I ended up in commercial real estate for 10 years, went from JLL to then Cushman. Cushman was my last role on the uh, private side as the CMO of Cushman Wakefield, which is one of the top three global real estate firms in the world. Um, and, uh, And it was an incredibly rewarding and interesting experience because we were able to take the word marketing and really give it meaning to the company in such a um, such an instrumental way. So, giving life to a group of, of uh, to a talent and to a team that historically had done very traditional marketing and shifting them to be growth marketers um, was an extraordinarily rewarding way to give back to these organizations. Um, and importantly, their bottom line. So Chicago, JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, I mean, these are, this is big. You're a leader at big time organizations. Did your meaning of success change once you were in that? Because where were you headed or did you have a plan? Like that's a, this is a pretty big deal. So, well, well, clearly it wasn't, money was not the, the driving factor as it was when I first got out of school, right? right. Now I it's about the contributions you can make, the legacy you can leave. Um, I was a very passionate people leader, you know, very performance-based. I was um, very focused on initiatives and charity and events that were meaningful to the, to the companies in ways that could help drive um, something impactful to the business. So, it did shift pretty significantly for me. Um, I think it also was when you are with companies like those, you meet such great, talented people um, and smart people and people smarter than you for all the right reasons. Right. And so I think it was also the ability to connect talent and people and turn it into meaningful outcomes for these businesses is for me was where I saw and got a lot of benefit from the roles that I was in. Um, I would also say that in both of these roles, I tended to always somehow find roles that were not not traditional and conventional. Um, There was many of these roles, there was paths that were unpaved. And so there was massive amounts of change and transformation happening uh, in in both JLL and Cushman, um, also in the city at the time I joined. 
Um, and so for me, that's pretty invigorating as a leader. I always, I always like to get into the and roll up my sleeves and get involved in organizations where there's just huge amounts of opportunity to make uh, such a significant impact. Did you ever consider staying in kind of the public sphere or, and, and, and follow-up question, would you advise other kind of young professionals to think about it, um, you know, to go work for the city or state or federal government? Great question, Josh. Uh, here's what I'd say. I, one, when I was leaving the mayor's office, I literally thought about going to work for Barack Obama, believe it or not. And this is, and I was not political coming in. So seven years later, I was so inspired by the work I was doing in solving, how do we clean up the city? How do we get low-income folks vaccinated? How do we ensure that the city taxpayers understand the value of the benefits? I mean, it was just, and I'm living in the city and raising my family in the city. So you can imagine how meaningful that work was. Anyone who hasn't been on the public side should 100% consider it. And I'm just going to advocate for women out there because there is not enough elected women officials. Please consider doing something. We have great minds and quite honestly, what what we do on the corporate side is so needed on the public side. Um, there are so many problems, complex problems, that our our analytical decision making that we've grown up with and been trained through through the corporate side actually affords us just a tremendous amount of runway when you get into solving city and and federal government issues. So. You know, to answer your question, yes, exclamation point. If you, and it doesn't have to be a paid position. You could volunteer. But we need, we continue to need bright minds involved in politics and in public policy, especially with what's going on in the world right now. For sure. What would you have done in the Obama administration? <sighs> it's a great question. Sometimes, most often, you don't get to determine. They, they generally give you a role I will tell you the reason I didn't end up going. I sat next to one of the uh, lobbyists that worked for uh, worked for Mayor Daley, still a friend today. Uh, and I was at that time, let's see, 35? No, I was at like 38. And, um, you know, he challenged me quite a bit on work-life balance. And at the end of the day, raising a family, I'd already had three kids. Uh, I think, that yeah, I didn't have my fourth yet. And it was, are you willing to do what's necessary, which is going to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Because that is what it is when you're working for a president. Um, and had I been a lot younger, I, I wouldn't have even flinched. But, you know, it also speaks to at certain times in our career, there's this, we have to choose the ebb and flow of what we take when we take it um, and recognize that there's going to be a shift in priorities. And I just wasn't the right time for me to make it, but I was that passionate that I considered it. That's great. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, fast forward, if you can continue on to the path, I'd love to hear how you got to, um, you know, your, your current, uh, your, your current undertaking. So, uh, as you know, COVID hit for many of us and I had been with Cush Wake for five years, Cushman Wakefield for five years, we took the company public we were one of the top 10 uh, IPOs in 2020, uh, or excuse me, 2018, um, and had learned a ton and had built a succession plan and had brought this organization from a marketing perspective, from traditional to growth. Um, I think we, we all would say the best thing we can do in our roles is to work ourselves out of them. 
And that's exactly what occurred for me with Cushman. Um, my husband owns a restaurant here in the city. So as I was leaving Cushman in March of 2020, COVID was hitting. And I think it was St. Patrick's Day. Uh, all of the restaurants were being ordered to, to shut down. Uh, and so quickly being kind of the, the scrappy marketer I've always been, I jumped into gear to try and help him and more importantly, our staff to make sure that we, we, we didn't choose that route. And so we, we re rejiggered the restaurant, went to takeout, did all these virtual dinners, et cetera. And this is hence how I stumbled on the role that I'm in today. What happened is we started to do virtual dinners, you know, beautiful four courses. People come to the restaurant, they'd pick them up, they'd grab their wines, they'd go get on Zoom. We'd have 75 people on Zoom. We'd pop them into their chat rooms. And it, we were trying to create an experience of being in the restaurant, but obviously all of us being uh, locked at home. And as we started to do that, more and more customers at our restaurant were really intrigued by the wine piece. Not only were they intrigued by what we were doing, they were like, can we get more of what you're doing? You know, we'd love to have more varietals. We'd love to have more wines from Washington. We don't seem to get much access to Willamette Valley. You know, we certainly know the, the California scene, but can you do some of this for us? And so my husband and I had planned a, a two-month, we call it wine and national park adventure. Um, where we, we visited five national parks. This was in the fall of 2020, and we visited probably 20 wineries in an effort to try and bring back to our consumers here back in Chicago more choices and varieties um, alongside some family time. And what I could not get my head around in all these wineries that we spent time with was, one, how beautiful these wineries were and the incredible um, – the incredible uh, beauty of the wines and how they drank, and this was particularly in, in Washington, very similar to Napa, but at a price less than what you would see with the traditional Napa Valley, uh, you know, d price that, that's demanded there. And so that was one observation. The second was, as I'm, as I'm sitting in these vineyards with these wonderful people and families, and I'm wondering why we can't get their wines to Chicago or to so many other states around the country. Um, and so as my husband and I drive home from this trip, I keep asking more and more questions about what's happening relative to the wine industry and online wine buying, three-tier distribution. And for every question I ask, there's 10 more questions that come about as a result of it. And what we come to realize is that in an era where we're all e-commerce and e-retail and it's double and triple digit growth, the online wine business is 5%, only 5% of a $70 billion industry, which, which for any of us as marketers, you have to scratch your head and go, why? Why? Everyone's buying everything online. Um, and so anyway... As a result of me asking many of those questions, we successfully launched uh, just, just 30, 45 days ago, Scoperta, as Matt mentioned, and it is a direct-to-consumer digital online wine marketplace that focuses very specifically on small to mid-sized wineries around the country. So what I felt very compelled to do 
was to give a platform to these small to mid-sized wineries that struggled through COVID because the only availability of consumers they had was a tasting room. And those consumers would come within a 50-mile radius to their tasting room. And as COVID shut everything down, it started to shrink their revenue. Some were on, you know, were close to bankruptcy and financial reckon. And so I thought, how could we give them what they desperately need, which is the opportunity to be seen by more people? Uh, Because I don't know if you guys are familiar, but today when you go into your grocery store or you go into your liquor store, you're only seeing 2,000 wineries of the 11,000 wineries that exist in this country. And that's because those 2,000 are fortunate enough to have the money to hire a distributor to come in to the restaurants and into the liquor stores and pay that premium, right? Many small to mid-sized wineries just can't afford that kind of distribution channel. So for me, I felt very compelled. Could we give them a platform? And the answer for me was yes. And could we give them marketing access to consumers around the country? And so given the experience that I have from all the years of marketing and my husband grew up as a restaurateur, as a technology executive, um, and being able to, and he also was involved in shipping and fulfillment, I thought, wow, what, what a great combination from both of our backgrounds to be able to launch something like this in the marketplace. And by the way, what an incredible opportunity to go out and shift the share and to give back to these beautiful people that, that, put so much time and energy into their wines to give them the sunshine in direct revenue and sales that they desperately need and deserve for the decades long relationship they've had as farmers and, you know, in connected in in a connected environment to producing beautiful wines. So here I am, you know, CEO and co-founder today, uh, a year and a half in, um, we have uh, we successfully launched our our brand out at South by Southwest, which is the largest creative and um, digital uh, event in the country, and we were the only wine uh, wine business to do so. Um, and we are you know open for business and live and starting to see incredible amounts of engagement and traction by consumers that are just tired of seeing the same things in their stores, in their liquor stores, on their restaurant menus, and now have an ability to engage and support these beautiful wineries um, and be able to have them ship directly from the winery to their doorstep. Oh, very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. I feel very, very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing uh, in my life at the moment. So, And, you, you know, the shift, is, the shift is so dramatic, Adrian, from, from corporate world to running your own business with your spouse <laughs> and building it from scratch and launching it. I, I guess, you know, it's easy to see from your story a lot of the skills that were transferable, right? I mean, you started and like, you know, really know what you're doing. And also um, the restaurant business, you really know well. And um, the, I'd be curious what shift you're most enjoying. Um, and then maybe what, what, what do you miss? Is it like a trapping or something from corporate world <laughs> that you miss? Because it's not all sunny. I mean, right. We're all going to jump and start our own businesses tomorrow, but we don't. So I wonder what you miss. Well, so I'll start with what I'm enjoying the most. I mean, most of my career, I've sat to the right of a CEO or a senior leader, right? As, as most of us do as marketing professionals. 
and executives. And what I'm enjoying the most is sitting in the CEO seat, right? And and oftentimes I think we all go down this path to your guys' question earlier around, are you ready for these roles? Can Do you have to stay in the marketing track all your career? And I think sometimes mentally we put ourselves there. Um, and so for me, it's it's invigorating to know that all that I've learned and all that, that I've done, which is influence people, right? Managing people and being able to support people and having vision um, and a strategy to go out and execute and get things done is incredibly transferable into the CEO role. Because really, most CEOs are looking at only three things, in my opinion. It's cash or financials, strategy, which is how do you continue to keep that flow in, and people. And interestingly for us, um, and for my career, there was a, I was very involved in all, all of those. Probably cash was the least, right? I wasn't a CFO. I wasn't running the, the bottom line. And I think as marketers, we'd all say we're much more creative than we are analytical and financial. But you know what? We'd surprise ourselves when we're being asked to jump in and do things um, and take on expanded scope. And so I'd encourage anyone in their current roles where there's reach assignments to get in and cross over that aisle and do things beyond what you've always done, go do them. Because you never know when you're going to be in a situation like where I am today, where having done some of that has afforded me the ability to kind of get into this role with a little bit more ease. Now, what I'll tell you I miss the most, I miss the fact that I don't get to roll up my sleeves. <laughs> as, I, as I used to, um, I, I have to stay um, pretty high level, pretty macro. Um, and there are things, especially in the company we have today, which is it's a marketing and technology company that happens to be focused on wine. There are marketing conversations happening all day long, 24 hours a day. And there are times when I have to say to myself, Adrian, it's the highest and best use of your time for the company, for your investors, for the future of where we're going against what we know you'd like to do. And so I, I have to coach myself. <laughs> fairly often. And thanks to people like yourself, Matt. Um, Matt mentioned that profits uh, involved in the work we're doing. They're a strategic partner with us. Um, you guys have been able to give me a little bit of breathing room on that because mm -hmm. I, I know I've got such great trusted experts. Right. Because if you're not the CEO, no one is, right? You've got to, if not right. you, who? Right. There's nobody steering the boat. Yeah. So that, that has been... Um, that has been an interesting experience for me, um, but I would I would say for those that are that are thinking about you know boy could I ever go from being a, a CMO to a CEO or a CFO I think in today's environment given the work that people are doing and the crossover I think there's requirements of doing that more often than ever you know when I when I was in my role as a CMO I spent more time on the technology side right? CIO and CMO are almost getting integrated. There's lots to say about that today, you know, in large companies. If you're a traditional CMO that doesn't have a technology backdrop, you're at a disadvantage. And so I think there's a lot of more crossover happening today. And I think being a generalist in some ways actually is more advantageous than being a specialist. Gives you the ability to, to transition. That's good advice. And I think your advice about understanding the cash side of things, right? Because strategy and people that comes right with 
lots of different departments and different positions, but understanding finance is something you kind of have to reach out and really try to learn. Well, and I, the other thing I would just say, Josh, is I've never been shy in asking for help, right? And so, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, when you're in a senior leadership role, asking, you know, saying you don't know something or asking for help, boy, that's, that's not a sign of strength. It actually is a sign of strength. Being vulnerable and being able to, to bring people on your team that are smarter than what, what you have in experience is only a sign of a more confident leader right? Versus the opposite. You know, we've all been in roles where we've had a leader who wants to be the very best of head and shoulders above the rest of their team. And it's not effective because you want those competing minds. You want that diversity of opinion and thought, and you want the sharpness to make you better. Um, so at the end of the day, for me, I, I think I think the goal objective for most should be one coming into a job and working yourself out of that job. If, if you're in the job a few years later and you're that needed, you haven't grown your talent, your people, your organization, or your vision for the company to operate without you so that you can go and continue to add more value to other organizations or other, other groups. I've always felt that way. So now, now that you started your business, your CEO, what what does success look like? What's the when we do the follow up podcast in in a couple of years? What should we hold you accountable for? Well, so so success for us is being able to 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 take what we've done and share this incredible platform with what we call four point five million curious wine drinkers out there, and we have done our our research to know exactly the type of people that not only enjoy drinking wine but appreciate the stories, the backstories behind them, appreciate the variety that they're going to continue to get and want to support desperately these local communities and these stories and share them with their friends and family. So for us, it's that we become a billion dollar direct to consumer brand. That's success for Scoperto. Um, that we're in commercials, that we're at the Super Bowl doing a 30 second. And by the way, let me also say this. For all, all those folks, too, that are listening, your bar has to be high on what you're looking to accomplish. Because if it's not high enough, you don't reach. Hmm. And so we actually just had the fortunate opportunity of doing with uh, Matt's team, we just did a, an opera, um, which was a, a comedic take on a very frustrated wine drinker today who goes online and can't find what they're looking for and doesn't have smart choices. Um, and as a result, this incredible gentleman comes in and starts singing about Scoperta. When we finish the production, and by the way, we've launched this at South by Southwest. I think we're at 1.2 million views right now. So if you guys want to want to check in on something fun and interesting from a marketing perspective, uh, Google Scoperta Opera um, and, and send me a note. Love to hear what you think about it. But, but when we finished that production and got on the stage at the end of the day, I said, I want to get a picture of everybody here on the stage, because when we are a billion dollar brand, we are going to look back at this picture and recognize the progress we made from where we were a month ago to where we're going to be 10 years from now. And so I think those kinds of things are really important. Um, but that's the, that's the trajectory we're on. We're, we're incredibly busy right now, Josh. Um, the days are flying by. There's not enough hours in the day to do what we're doing, 
We're getting an incredible amount of engagement and excitement. A lot of orders are coming in the door. If you haven't, if you're interested in wine, you love wine, and you're looking for something different than what you see in your grocery store and your liquor store, and you want to support local winemakers who really are farmers. Um, I mean, many of them are not marketers. They're not technologists. They're farmers. Um, go to scopertowine.com. Check us out um, and order a few bottles and send me a, a note. I'm on Instagram and um, Facebook. Uh, shoot me a note and tell me what you think. Would love to hear any feedback. Definitely will do. You got some big wine drinkers you're talking to. So. Everyone's a big wine drinker, yeah. Now it's time for Thank You Notes, where we ask our guests to thank someone from their past that perhaps opened a door or gave them a piece of indelible advice. Adrian, who are you going to thank? Well, so because obviously I'm, on, I'm in a startup, we just launched, and there's a lot happening on that front. Um, there is a, an individual that I would like to thank who has been uh, an incredible advisor and coach to us as we have advanced here. And as we kind of talked about shifting from CMO to CEO, shifting from corporate America to startup. Um, and his name is Mike Shu, And he is formerly with Foundation Capital out of Sonoma, California. And um, he has given me a ton of great information and insights and nuggets. He has had a career of his own right that has been incredibly successful. But I will leave you guys with a book that if you haven't read um, and you're interested in the world of venture capital and startup businesses and particularly interested in women who are breaking through that barrier and glass ceiling, Alpha Girls is a book that Mike asked me to read that I cannot get out of my head. It is about four incredible women that had were obviously in a male-dominated industry in the venture capital world, and they broke through. And uh, of course, the companies they represent, you will all know today as you pick up this book. Um, but it is fascinating. And so I thank him for all that he has done in guiding us uh, to this point with Scoperta and what I know he'll do for us as we uh, advance the ball and move forward. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Now it's time for our top picks, and this is where we, we share with our listeners a, a book, an app, a podcast, a, a life hack, anything we think that they'd find interesting. Adrian, you just gave us a, one book with Alpha Girls. Is there anything else that's keeping you engaged? Well, I would tell you that I do love um, Calm, which is an app that does a little bit of uh, meditating. And I find it, you know, no matter where I am in the day, as crazy as my days are, it helps give me a little bit of room to uh, figuratively and technically breathe. Uh, and I do think this work-life balance and meditation is really important for the clarity of thought we need in, you know, the complex roles that we're serving. So that's, that's one that I'm, I'm pretty tied to. Um, the other for me is Peloton, the world of Peloton. When, when I have a crazy thought or idea or I'm having a bad day, or um, I can't get something out of my head, I am jumping on that bike. And maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a COVID strategy, um, but for me, it's definitely a, a part of my life and keeping things balanced and making sure that not just my mind is sharp, but you know the, the health and mental well-being, which is so critical in today's world, right? Mental health is such an important topic. 
um, that we could all probably talk about for hours. Um, but being able to feed that in ways that are meaningful, those are the, the two areas that I do that. Great. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, Matt? I'm going to pick an app, a very, very, very large app. In fact, it's a car. It's my new car. We just got a Polestar. We've just got a completely electric. So we had a little mini electric, and then we got up the courage to turn in our other car and get another car that goes real distance. And I love it. Like, it runs on Google. It's like, it's a different experience. I'm, I'm not like a tree hugger or anything. Like, I just love this idea of running around without any fumes and plugging in and we're getting something installed and it's just a different view of software and a different way of, of living in a way too. It creates its own stresses, but I'm really so far so good. It's been, it's been two weeks and we're just hundred percent electric and it's, um, it's really fun. And if anybody has any questions about taking the leap, by all means reach out and I will be unvarnished unless I'm trapped somewhere in the middle of a highway without being able to move. Great. Uh, mine's a, a, a book at, and uh, there's a podcast that's uh, by a gentleman, Azim Azar. He's, I, I believe he's a, maybe he's a Harvard Business School professor. Or he, he, he focuses on technology, but his book is, it just came out called The Exponential Age. And it kind of goes into all these kind of big ideas on transformation of different technologies. But um, if you want like a simpler version, you can just listen. He has a weekly podcast and it's, you know, covers everything from AI to microbiology, all, all things that like I wouldn't necessarily encounter in my day-to-day -day professional life, but I feel like just listening to it kind of sometimes opens up the horizons a bit. But yeah, Azim Azar, either his books or his podcast. Cool. Great. Adrian, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think we all heard a lot more about your career and your and your wisdom. So I'm sure people will go to scopertowine.com and they'll also reach out to you and tell you what they think. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you both. Much appreciated.